Good morning, everybody. We've just come back from holiday and it's wonderful to be back in Zimbabwe. We always feel such a clear sense from God that this is where we're meant to be, um, doing the work of extending His kingdom here. And it's great to be back with our church family. We, we went to the Arundel Road site on Sunday, just loved um, seeing people. I'm also really pleased to be back with my dog and my chickens. Uh, Gail reminded me that I needed to get the order right. Uh, not say the dog and the chickens first before the church family. Anyway, I got that one straight. Um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful to be back. And we've had a great holiday, feeling very rested and refreshed. We feel incredibly privileged, actually, that God blessed us in this way. We don't see it as a right, but definitely as a privilege. Uh, but when it comes and God blesses us in this way, it's just so, so wonderful. Would you like to turn to Ephesians chapter 5? verses 22 to 33 we continue with the subject of marriage today let me read to you wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. A couple of days ago, I was in an elders meeting and Tony Roberts said something which has had quite a profound effect on me over the last few days. He said, you can only take people with you to heaven. So to put it another way, when you get to heaven, you will be reunited with members of God's family, but only with members of God's family. You're not going to be reunited with your favorite motor car, with your house with the position and power and authority that perhaps you had on earth. You're not going to be reunited with your favorite clothes or your shoes. None of those things. We only get to be reunited with people. And that's why our relationships are such a priority in God's scheme of things, or at least they should be. Relationships before money, possessions, position, popularity, power, people before all of these things. Think of it this way. Um, if you can love and influence and disciple your children, then you make it that much more likely that you'll be reunited with them in heaven. And the same goes for all sorts of other relationships. You'll get to take those people to heaven with you, whether they're relatives or friends or colleagues. And remember that God has put you where you are and he's given you the relationships you have by design. 
so that you can influence those people and hopefully have enough influence with the power of the Holy Spirit and God's work to take them with you to heaven. Now, I don't want you to take what I've just said at face value because I'm not quoting it from the Bible as such. I'm not giving a chapter and a verse for it. So let's see whether it lines up with the progression of Paul's thinking in chapter 5. And this will also be by means of a recap over the, uh, of the sermons that I preached over the last few weeks. So we can start there in verse 15. Step number one in Paul's thinking. Paul commands intentional living. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making best use of the time because the days are evil. Look carefully then how you walk. The NIV translates this as be very careful then how you live. And the Greek carries the idea of accuracy, precision, and close attention. The way that you live needs to be intentional. Don't simply drift through life, allowing external influences to define who you are and what you do. And the reason for that is because the days are evil. There is a stream, a river, if you like, of evil that wants to carry you away from the plans and purposes of God. And whenever somebody is swimming against the stream, they need to be intentional. They need to exert effort. They certainly mustn't drift because they'll end up where they don't want to go. So that's why we need to live intentionally. And verse 17 is very similar. Let's keep on reading. It says, therefore, do not be foolish. And then it contrasts foolishness with what Paul wants us to do, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So that's step one of Paul's thinking. And as part of our recap, the command to live intentionally. Step two, Paul commands spirit-filled living. So he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. So getting drunk with wine is sort of like a snapshot or a sample of the kind of behavior that goes with being a child of darkness, not a child of the light. If you are a child of the light, then you're going to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we spent a lot of time trying to explain what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And folks, if what I'm saying here is reminding you and bringing back a whole lot of stuff that's excellent. But if you're thinking, well, this is very quick, very brief, then you need to go back to the previous sermon. So be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means give the Holy Spirit control of your life. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You, you don't get any more of the Spirit than you already have because the Spirit's a person. But you need to yield control of yourself, more and more of yourself and of your life to the control of the Holy Spirit. So step one is a command to live intentionally. Step two is a command to be filled with the Spirit. And then Paul launches into this big block of teaching on relationships. Relationships between husband and wife, parents and children, slave and master, or in our context, employer and employee. And we think, why? Why does he do that? Why? How do these three things fit together? What is his flow of thought? Intentional living, spirit-filled living, and then teaching on relationships. And the reason is that getting relationships right, get this, is the essence 
of intentional living. If you want to live an intentional life that conforms to the will of God, you need to prioritize your relationships. And this brings us to the conclusion that we came to earlier, that you can only take people with you. That's why relationships are so important. And you can see that Paul obviously views this in the same way. And then secondly, since the greatest threat to any relationship is selfishness, self-centeredness, me, 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 putting my rights, putting my privileges, putting my needs before everybody else's, is the main eroder or corroder of relationships. And we need to learn to overcome that self-centeredness. And the only way that we can do that is with the power of the Holy Spirit. We need a Holy Spirit-empowered attitude of submission. Remember, submission is aligning the other person's needs, wishes, desires, um, I beg your pardon, above yours. So, getting relationships right is the essence of intentional living. And then we need to overcome self-centeredness with a Holy Spirit-empowered attitude of submission. So with these things in mind, and we can see that that's how Paul is entering into the subject, let's allow them to drive, as it were, the importance of the subject of marriage. We're going to talk about marriage now. And in the last two sermons, we discovered that the power of marriage is being spirit-filled because the Spirit empowers us for submission. Believe me, you're not going to overcome your selfishness without the Holy Spirit's help and control in your life. That was the power of marriage. Then we looked at the purpose of marriage, and we said that the purpose of marriage is friendship. And we used a definition from Tim Keller that friendship is defined in the context of marriage as deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey to the same horizon. Deep oneness that comes from a mutual journey to the same horizon. Deep oneness. There is a, a very deep oneness that happens in the marriage relationship. When I commit to another person and they commit to me, and we make vows before God and before one another and before the community, then we become one flesh, which means we become one unit. We become one entity and there is a completeness that happens. That's why when Adam saw Eve, he said, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Up until that point, he had felt a lack and God had highlighted that lack by asking him to name all of the animals. And that was showing him that there was nothing in all of creation that was really filling or completing that gap which he had in his life. And so we have this deep oneness. And then we take a journey together. And it's a journey of love and of cleansing. Remember, we talked about how our responsibility as spouses is to help our spouse to become more and more like Christ in the gentlest and kindest and most loving possible way. And then we travel to that final point on the horizon, which is holiness. And that holiness, folks, is pictured when we stand before the altar because the altar represents the throne of God. And the bride stands there perfectly in white. The groom is properly turned out, no creases, no wrinkles. And this is a picture of what is going to happen at the end when we've completed the journey. We're going to stand before God 
holy and blameless and perfect and without spot and blemish. So, the power of marriage, the purpose of marriage. And now today, we're going to talk about the design of marriage. And the best way to understand how God has designed marriage is to understand the roles that he expects the husband and the wife to fulfill in marriage. Some comments. When you have a look at today's passage, you will have seen certain commands. So there was one command which said, wives, submit to your own husbands. Then there was another command that said, husbands, love your wives. And then another one that said, wives, respect your husbands. Now, does this mean that the husband should not submit to his wife? It doesn't. Because at the start of the passage, at the introduction, he said, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Think of, think of this. If God commands the wife, the husband to love his wife, does that mean that the wife shouldn't love her husband? Yeah, absolutely not. So what he's doing here is he's recognizing the fact that because of our makeup, because of the different roles that we fulfill in marriage, we need special reminders to do certain things. But those reminders or those commands apply to both partners. So there's submission in both, there's love in both, there's respect, respect in both. However, when you think of a wife, part of the image of God that is expressed in a wife that isn't expressed so well in a husband is the caring, nurturing aspect of a mother and of a wife. Now, the wife then doesn't need to be commanded to love because it's something that comes more instinctively to her. Think of the husband. He, is, um, he carries the image of God that likes to bring order out of chaos, that leads, likes to protect, that likes to provide. And so as he fulfills that role, those things come naturally to him. But being caring and loving don't necessarily come as naturally. So he needs to be commanded to love his wife and to take care of his wife. So let's move on to husbands now and have a look at the role of husbands. And we can sum up the role of being a husband with one word, headship. Have a look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So what Paul is doing here is he's drawing an analogy between Christ's headship of the church and a husband's headship over his wife and over his family. There is something that we can learn about the headship of Christ that will teach us how to be good heads over our wives and over our children. And we need to determine what that is. Now remember, any metaphor has its limits. We can't necessarily apply everything. So for example, when I used to exercise with Ray Price and Barry Thomas, they used to call me the racing snake. Now that's not because I'm venomous and scaly. Uh, at least I hope it's not, because <laughs> those wouldn't be great um, qualities for a pastor. But no, they're saying that I'm skinny and I'm fast. So there's an extent to which the metaphor applies and to which it doesn't apply. So in what way is the headship of Christ the same as the headship of a husband over his wife and over his children? And fortunately, Paul is very clear here. First of all, headship 
implies responsibility. It has everything to do with responsibility, not with rights and privilege and dominion. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I'm sure that's coming as a bit of a shock to wives. It's maybe something that grates against the flesh, and we're going to come back to that. But just, just think about it for a moment from the husband's perspective. If God is saying to me, Ian, Gail needs to submit to you in everything. I actually find that quite a frightening prospect because it means that God is giving me responsibility, ultimate responsibility for the way in which our marriage is conducted, for the way in which we raise our family, for the way in which we live, for the way in which we serve God. Oh my word, this is a very serious responsibility. And this is not saying that I am more valuable than Gail, because that principle of mutual submission which applies tells us that we are on an equal basis. We're on a level playing field. But what it does mean is that I, in a sense, am a first among equals. I have been given the responsibility to lead and to finally make the decisions. So I'd like to talk about this just a little bit, um, get, maybe getting down to some practicalities here so that I can help you to understand. So, for example, Gail and I, or our family, is facing a particular issue. It's my job as the father to make, initiate good decision-making. So that means, and you can, you can look at it on the slide that we're, we're going to put up there, that surrounding that particular issue, there is a pool of meaning that Gail has, and there is a pool of meaning that I have. Now, in that pool of meaning, in, in Gail's pool of meaning, there are going to be experiences, there are going to be feelings, there are going to be facts that are not in my pool of meaning. There are going to be a whole lot of things that she has in her pool of meaning that I don't have in my pool of meaning. And so we want to get, and it works the other way as well, we want to get all of that into a common pool of meaning so that we can understand this issue in the best possible way. And I know that in certain, certain issues, maybe things that in the past that were to do with raising the children, to do with um, other stuff, I just knew that I had to get Gail's input because she was actually more qualified than me to make the decision. I just have to recognize that. So in this whole area of guiding and leading the family, it's not about being an autocrat and simply saying, well, I just get to decide and not listening to anybody else. No, it's not at all like that. What we need to do is that we need to build consensus because we are on a level playing field. But then at the end of that process, if we find that we can't decide that Gail wants to do one thing, Ian wants to do another, or thinks it's right to do another, ultimately there needs to be a first among equals. There needs to be someone who will take responsibility ultimately before God, because you're going to be giving uh, an answer to God one day, an account to God, and say, okay, I've heard it all. This is what we're going to do. So that gives you some idea of what it means to fulfill the role of being a head in terms of responsibility. Now, secondly, headship requires sacrificial love. Verse 25, it says, Husbands, 
love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ show his love for the church? It was through sacrifice, wasn't it? I loved what, what Trevor was preaching about last week when he talked from Ephesians chapter 2 about how Jesus was equal to God. He was in essence the same as God. He had all the rights and the privileges that accrued to God and yet he surrendered those. He didn't consider them to be something to be held onto and grasped. No, he let them go so that he could serve us, so that he could sacrifice his very life for us. And that gives us a picture of the way in which husbands are to love their wives. What does this look like practically? <laughs> you know, sometimes we think um, in terms of these great magnificent acts of self-sacrifice, maybe diving over on, on top of our um, wife when, the, when shooting is broken out to protect her. No, but this needs to work out on it. It needs to be expressed on a daily basis. And for me, the one thing that, I, that I've learned and, and the, way, the way that I try to do this is to know that I need to communicate love to my wife and to my children on a daily basis. Now that my children have left home, my wife more so on a daily basis. And I need to speak and communicate love to her in a language that she understands. And that's why um, this idea of love languages has come up. Um, and we need to find out what the love language of our spouse is. If it's acts of service, then just try and figure out one or two ways that you can serve your wife every day. If it's words of encouragement, then figure out. If it's quality time, spend quality time with your wife. Make sure that you do it, even if you're not wired that way. Put aside your interests, your desires, and just consider hers first for a change. So, headship implies responsibility. It requires sacrificial love. And then thirdly, headship requires caring love. <laughs> this is quite, quite difficult for us as husbands. Verse 28 says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Several weeks ago we talked about the deep oneness that develops when a man and a woman commit to that mutual journey, a journey towards holiness. So folks, if you promote yourself at the expense of your wife, if you promote your own interests at the expense of your wife, you're going to end up harming yourself. Just remind yourself that. We forget just how, how intimate that deep oneness is when we commit to our wife or to our husband. And so just as Christ feeds the church, just think of how Christ fed the church. Just think of how he nourished and protected the church. In the same way, we need to do that. And in such a way that it, it promotes and produces the growth of the whole person, of your wife, wife's whole person. I wonder if you've created the type of environment in your marriage that is going to enable your wife to reach her full potential in Christ. You're going to have to be intentional about that and make sure that you help her to find out what she's good at. And then when you see what she's good at, well, I'll call it out, encourage her, help her to grow. 
She'll be doing it for you because wives do it instinctively. You need to make the effort. So, headship implies responsibility. It requires sacrificial love and it requires caring love. Let's move on to wives now. And, you know, in many ways, I think we've covered the instructions for wives as we were talking about husbands. But let me just underline here that the buck stops with your husband. He's going to take ultimate responsibility before God. And he's going to have to give an account to God one day for the decisions that have been made. Would you like to have that responsibility? <laughs> I, I know that I've, I've been told to have that responsibility as a man. It's not something that I necessarily would have chosen. And so I think it's a big thing to recognize just how serious that responsibility is for your husband. And if he takes ultimate responsibility for everything, that's why you need to submit in everything. And since he's required to love, you are required to respect. Verse 33 says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And then the final command there is, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. I was reading a summary of a study that had been done. Uh, this summary was on the BBC News. And it was talking about how a husband's greatest need is a need for respect. Husbands need to make submission winsome by loving, by caring, by helping to make decisions in um, a, a, an other orientated way. But the wives should facilitate and make that easy and pleasurable for their husbands through submission and through respect. And folks, if you're dealing with a difficult issue in your life and you can't um, necessarily come to, the, to an agreement on how to do it and the husband finally makes that decision and says, well, I just think this is what we need to do, then wives, you mustn't say, I told you so if things go wrong. This is part of the way of showing love and respect to your husband. Let's just agree that we're going to do our best to solve problems together, but the husband makes the final decision and the wife doesn't say, I told you so. I also think it's significant, folks, that it says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I think sometimes that wives don't necessarily see, the, or they've got a blind spot as to how they might be disrespecting their husband. So make an effort to see, to, to, to make an effort um, that you do respect your husbands. Just some, some closing comments before we tie this all up. Um, the model of marriage that's described here is a target to aim for, and it does require commitment from both partners to make it work. So, in that sense, the, the model has fairly limited application. For example, if you encounter a, a case where a wife is being physically or emotionally abused by her husband, then don't tell her to go back and submit. Dealing with such cases is not so simple. Many things need to take place before both the husband and the wife buys into that biblical model and, that, and then its principles can be applied. The process might include things like tough love and the wife removing herself from danger. You know, if a wife regularly submits to abuse, 
her husband will not respect her and the abuse may well escalate. Just in conclusion then, we only get to take people with us to heaven. We're only going to be reunited with people. That's why relationships are so important. And the marriage relationship is even more important, important in a sense because it is there as a picture on earth of Christ's relationship with the church. And so there is tremendous power in a successful marriage, in a marriage that is honors and glorifies God. Yes, it's going to have its ups and downs. Yes, it's going to have its struggles. But even in that, people will see something of God's and Christ's commitment to the church and vice versa. So that's why we need to get our relationships right. And that's why we need to get our marriage relationships right. So if you're a single person today, this provides you with something to aim towards. This is what you're getting in for. And I would, I would encourage you as a single person to go back and to listen to the sermons that I've preached on marriage just so that you have a clear understanding of what, it, what the target is that you're aiming for. And then if you are married, well, there's always work to be done, isn't there, folks? There's deeper understanding to be done. Husbands, remember to, to put your think about your wives before you think about yourself. Remember to communicate love to them in a language that they understand. Wives, submit to your husbands. Don't say, I told you so. Um, and I, I just know that with God's help, we will end up modeling the kind of relationships that will be winsome, that will point people to God so that people will turn to Him and we may end up being reunited with them in heaven one day. Shall we pray? Father, just in closing, I want to pray for a blessing on the single people at Harvest Church. And Father, I ask for guidance for them. I ask for wisdom and insight. I ask for an empowering of the Holy Spirit to enable them to make good decisions in their relationships and ultimately, when they get married, to have good God-honoring marriages. Father, I'd also like to pray for those people who are in marriages at the moment. I ask for a blessing on those marriages at harvest, that they would be a tremendously winsome example of Christ's relationship with the church. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for signing in, and we'll see you again in the next few weeks. Goodbye for now.